The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Because you, Lord Jesus, rose from the dead, and Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. That's a celebration of the resurrection reality, and thank you so much, music team, and those wonderful words, how appropriate during the Easter season, a time to rejoice and celebrate if you are a child of God, knowing what Jesus has done on your behalf through His death and resurrection. Well, with that, we have the opportunity to look at God's Word together, and I'd invite you to open up to Luke chapter 19. And if you want to follow along in the bulletin on the back, there's a little outline there for you as we'll begin at verse 28 and go through verse 48. And last week I read the parable that came just before this. So the incident or the events that we're looking at today in Luke 19 uh, happened right after what we just addressed last week. And it corresponds to what's going on in um, our calendar today, and that's the week of passion. If you need a Bible and would like to borrow one, you can go ahead and raise your hand. We'll get one to you. And Children's Church, we'll pick up with Children's Church. Next week is Easter, Resurrection Sunday, so we'll pick up with Children's Church the first week of May. So today we'll be in here together. And that's a good thing to have uh, the young ones in here together as we look at this all-important day known as Palm Sunday. That's the title I put on the sermon. Uh, It's also known as the triumphal entry, or at least the passage that we're looking at historically. Probably more appropriately called the humble entry as opposed to the triumphal entry entry. Um, there are no palm branches in Luke 19, 28 and following as we'll read the story. Take note of that. But the parallel account in the Gospel of John talks about how palm branches were being waved by masses of people as the Lord Jesus entered into Jerusalem on this very day 2,000 years ago. And that's where it got that moniker of Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry the Lord Jesus. Today being Palm Sunday or the day of the triumphal entry, it formally begins what we call Passion Week, historically known in the church, where beginning today on Sunday leading up to the death of Christ on Friday and then the resurrection on Sunday, throughout church history has been called the Passion Week, the, Christ, uh, the week of Christ's passion, leading up to the time where he was falsely accused and then arrested and beaten and falsely tried and then condemned to death on the cross, that substitutionary death that he welcomed on behalf of sinners and then was buried and rose again from the dead. All that happens uh, this week. That is the passion of Christ, the atonement of Christ, the saving work of Christ. It's a very important week. And the church has done the right thing to make much to do about Holy Week or Passion Week or the week of Palm Sunday. After all, if you look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or just take the Gospel of John as a good example. It's got 21 chapters in it. 21 chapters, but half of the entire book of the Gospel of John is just about the last week of Jesus' life. And big chunks of the other three Gospels do the same thing, which puts it in its proper perspective. The most important thing about Christ that we need to remember is that He came for a very specific purpose. He came to die. He was born to die. And the Gospels remind us of that. We need to be reminded because it's easy to lose perspective and forget the priorities of who Jesus is and why did Jesus come the first time. And Scripture always is the plumb line to bring us back in our thinking about the most important person in the world, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I didn't grow up in a Bible-believing home, but I did grow up in a religious home that was exposed to the truths of Scripture here and there that would leak out that I'd become familiar with, and also a lot of tradition about Jesus. So I actually grew up being very well aware of Holy Week, as we call it, or and even Palm Sunday. And as I think back during my childhood being raised uh, in that home, we talked much about and were reminded of Holy Week and Passion Week, but it wasn't primarily driven by the Scriptures. It was primarily by tradition. So for all the years that I was hearing about Passion Week and Palm Sunday and triumphal entry and Easter and Christ's death, it wasn't biblically informed. And as a result, I didn't really understand the meaning of Christ's Passion Week at all. My entire life growing up, it wasn't until I became a Christian then in hindsight look back and say, wow, I missed the boat. I thought I was rejoicing and celebrating Christ's last week on earth and all of His ministry, and yet I missed the most important thing about what was going on that week. And again, it's because I was ignorant and I wasn't informed in my thinking by Scripture. So uh, here I was hearing about the very so-called events and didn't understand their meaning properly of why Christ walked into Jerusalem on that Sunday 2,000 years ago and what His purpose was and what He was doing all week and why He even died on the cross. I did not understand why He died on the cross when I was growing up. I thought He was a helpless, unfortunate victim. And I was determined, wow, if He could have only got out of that and didn't get killed, that would have been better. If Jesus escaped His death, that's literally what I thought and believed and desired growing up. And then I came to realize, wow, thinking was very wrong. So I was was quite ignorant. Uh, But I wasn't the only one that was ignorant. Before we jump into Luke 19, go back to Luke 18. About around chapter 9 of Luke, Luke is very specific about Jesus has fixed His face on Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross. He's going to Jerusalem. That's kind of the big overarching theme in Luke from chapter 9 all the way to the end of the book. And so Jesus is on this journey going to Jerusalem to accomplish and fulfill the very reason of why He was born. And He's got His disciples, His 12 apostles with Him every step of the way. This is after being with them for over three years and being with them and modeling and teaching and uh, revealing Himself as Messiah. So you would think after a three-year seminary education with the Master, Jesus Himself, they would understand the very basics of, number one, who Jesus is. Excuse me, and why he was doing what he was doing and why he's going to Jerusalem. But listen to this. This is after the three years of training. It's the week before his death or very close to it. He's with his 12 apostles. He's about to enter into Jerusalem for Holy Week. Luke 18, verse 31 says this. He took the 12 aside, pulled them aside away from the crowd so he can talk to them. Okay, huddle over here, boys. Where he's going to disclose or reveal very specific information to them as his apostles. And he said, behold, okay, get this. Pay attention. This is very important. Behold, we are going, we, you guys are going with me. We are going up to Jerusalem. Literally going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was almost a mile high in terms of their walk. We are going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. And by, in, at that point, his apostles are cheering and yippee! Because they knew and believed at that point that Jesus was the Messiah. So in their mind, they're thinking, oh, this is great. Jesus is going to be uh, ushered in as king and sit on the throne and uh, rule over Rome and trample them under feet and the Jewish nation will be liberated and we'll have 
political and economic and social and every other kind of physical stability that we can under Jesus our King. That's what they're thinking. All things will be fulfilled. Verse 32, he says, For he will be delivered up to the Gentiles. They didn't want to hear that. When we get up to Jerusalem, I, the Messiah, am going to be delivered up to the Gentiles. That's Pontius Pilate and the Roman soldiers. I will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. Okay, now they're, they're, the apostles are getting nervous as they're hearing this. Well, wait a minute. This is messing up our plans for you, Jesus. And they're getting confused. Verse 33, and after they, had, they have scourged him, Jesus keeps talking, they will kill him. We're going up to Jerusalem and they are going to kill me. Now, the apostles, they didn't get it. Does not compute, does not compute. You cannot, you cannot reign as a king with a rod of iron if you're going to get killed. Verse 33 at the end, it says, In the third day he will rise again. Verse 34, here's the key. And they understood none of these things. Those are his apostles. Can you imagine? They understood none of these things. What in the world are you talking about, Jesus? Okay, now flip back to the gospel of, uh, or flip forward to the gospel of John chapter 12. <clears throat> so that's before they enter into Jerusalem. That's before Palm Sunday, right before. And scripture says they did not understand what Jesus was talking about, they didn't understand the plan. So then a, a little time passes, and then in John chapter 12, on the next day, uh, John 12, verse 12, it is now Palm Sunday. On the next day, the great multitude, there was a huge, massive crowd with Jesus. There was also another huge, massive crowd that he was going to meet in Jerusalem at the feast at the Passover. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they heard that he was entering the city and he was, had gone through Jericho. And now he's approached on the Mount of Olives and about to descend down from the Mount of Olives just a mile away and come to the city of Jerusalem during Passover week. And the crowds were excited. Verse 13, they ran out to Jesus. They took branches from the palms, trees, and they went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a donkey, sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king comes sitting on a donkey's colt. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. So you have possibly hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem coming out of the city to greet Jesus. You have thousands more who are already with Jesus going down into Jerusalem. With the cacophony of praise and the, the crowds are literally euphoric at the thought of Jesus coming in as the Messiah to be crowned as king in fulfillment of Scripture and they even are quoting from Scripture, Psalm 118, Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9 being a, a kingly uh, reference to the Messiah. So hopes are high. And all this is going on, and he's surrounded by his apostles as they squeeze through the crowds, going down the Mount of Olives, entering into Jerusalem, the holy city. Verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at, the, at first. They still didn't understand what was going on. What they didn't understand was Jesus' real mission, what was about to happen. Where they were confused is why Jesus was entering into the city. What they didn't understand is that Jesus was going in there not to reign as physical king, but to die as spiritual savior and be rejected by his own people, rejected by the leadership of his very own nation, and even rejected by one of the very own apostles of Christ themselves. So this is in reference to the apostles and those who were closest to Jesus. They did not understand and interpret properly 
Palm Sunday, Holy Week, and the meaning of Christ's first coming that culminated in His death in Jerusalem. And I think of 1 Peter chapter 1 where it says the prophets all throughout history wrote prophecies about the Messiah. And many times when they wrote those prophecies, it says they were confused and they were desiring to know the meaning because they didn't know many times they wanted to know more details about who the Christ was and also the timing related to the Christ. See, that is what confused the Jews. Many times the timing of the chronology and the mission of the Messiah was jumbled in their mind. Now, to highlight that before we go back to Luke 19, go to Zechariah at the end of your Old Testament. Very important. Starting in Zechariah chapter 9, I just want to point out a couple of verses in Zechariah because one of the verses in particular shows up in our text today in Luke 19. So starting at Zechariah 9, imagine that you are either Zechariah in 500 B.C. You don't know the name of Jesus. You've never heard the name of Jesus before. You're a Jew. You've grown up in the synagogue. You've grown up with Old Testament scriptures. You've never heard the word Jesus. You don't know anything about the word church. You do not have a New Testament. You don't know who the apostles are because they haven't written anything. They don't even exist. So this is the Jewish frame of mind in 500 B.C. as Zechariah is writing these prophecies regarding the coming of the Messiah. And in this 14-chapter prophetic treatise that Zechariah pens at this time, he says many things regarding the coming Messiah. But the mystery is, is that he makes references to things that are going to happen with the Messiah, but it's out of order because they happen at different times. Some of the things that happened to Israel in Zechariah happened during the Zechariah happened during the day of Zechariah. Some of these prophecies are fulfilled in that day, 500 B.C. But some of the prophecies are fulfilled at the birth of Christ. Some are fulfilled in the life of Christ. Some are fulfilled the last week of Christ's life. Some are fulfilled at Christ's death. Some are fulfilled at the end times during the tribulation. Some are fulfilled during the millennium. And then some are fulfilled even after that at the second coming of Christ. And these are all about the Messiah and they're all in the book of Zechariah. So you have these huge time gaps between all these prophecies. And sometimes they're right next to each other. Verse 9 and verse 10. And they're separated by 2,000 years. Zechariah, when he wrote that, I guarantee he had no idea that all these things were happening at different times in history. And I guarantee you, the apostles and the disciples and the Pharisees in the days of Christ knew about all of these events, but the one thing they didn't understand was the sequence and the timing that separated all of these events. And that's why it was one big jumbled mess. And that's why when Jesus would say, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die, the apostles were like, what? We are on the Mount of Olives. People are calling you king. We are going to go over and take over as king, Lord Jesus, and you're going to rule with an iron fist. Because that's what Zechariah 14 said when you plant your feet on Mount Olive. So let's go ahead and look at Zechariah 9. And just, I just want to point out a few prophecies and note that they happen at different times. Separated sometimes by thousands of years. Uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is a prophecy that it actually is in Luke 19 today. It says, Rejoice greatly, says the prophet, O daughter of Zion. He's talking to the people of Israel. And he's giving them good and encouraging news of this prophecy. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. By the way, that's what these people were doing on Palm Sunday, they are shouting in triumph, Jesus is King. We will be liberated. We will have social, political, and economic justice. It's imminent. The Romans are no more. And behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, 
humble and mounted on a donkey. That's what happened on Palm Sunday. Jesus was mounted on a donkey. They didn't understand the humble part. He was humble. He wasn't coming as a warrior on a white stallion. He will someday in the future. Revelation 19 at His second coming, but not this time. He's not coming, coming as the conquering king. He's coming as the humble Savior mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That happened on Palm Sunday. But look at verse 10. It jumps into the future. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem, the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea. You know what? That speaks of the future during the millennium when Christ literally will reign on the earth with an iron fist and a rod of iron in his hand ruling over the nations from one sea to the other where he will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords in every conceivable facet. So verses 9 and 10 are separated by at least 2,000 years plus. Zechariah didn't know that. The apostles didn't know that. Uh, Go to Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. All these prophecies about the coming Messiah and how he'll reign and reign as king. And then at the end of verse 12, it says, So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. There's a prophecy regarding what the Messiah would be betrayed with so that he might die. So there's actually a reference to his death. Then look at chapter 12, verse 3. And it will come about in that day, this is a future day, that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. That's a prophecy regarding the tribulation. So you see these prophecies that are separated by years and years. And then look at chapter 12, verse 10. Middle of the verse, it says, they will look on me. That's Israel. They will look on me whom they have pierced. That's a reference to his death by crucifixion. So here you're going to the time of Christ's death, and then you're jumping to the future at the tribulation. Then you're jumping back in reference to Christ's death, and then again to the time of the tribulation and the millennium. And then look at chapter 13, verse 7. At the end of the verse, it says, Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. That is a reference and a prophecy that Jesus would be abandoned by His own apostles at the time of His arrest during the Passion Week. And then finally in Luke, uh, Zechariah 14, verse 1, Behold, a day is coming from the Lord. That's not speaking of the time of His first coming. That's His second coming. And verse 4 says, And in that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Keep in mind, the apostles are with Him. They are on Mount Olives. And I wonder if many of the apostles were thinking, this is it. What's going to happen? According to Zechariah, do you remember Zechariah 14, Peter? Yeah, I do, John. We memorized that one in synagogue elementary school. And what happens? Well, this is, could be what they were thinking. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the the north and the other half toward the south. This is where Jesus comes, or the Messiah comes, and reigns on the earth with Jerusalem as his kingly headquarters. Now I'll go back to Luke 19. And now you can be reminded and understand maybe a little better of why they were so confused. Everybody was confused about the chronology and the timing. And they're looking for the glory, but they don't even want to be thinking about the suffering that must come before the glory. And 1 Peter 1 says it very clear that the prophets wrote these prophecies. They didn't understand because they were always inquiring about what 
the Messiah would be like and the timing of the coming of the Messiah and the sorrows and the glories to follow. That is very important. It's the sorrows first, then the glories to follow later. So the first time Jesus came, He came as humble, suffering servant to give His life as a ransom for many by His substitutionary death and His powerful resurrection as He seeks them out as Savior with the glorious Gospel. That's why He came the first time. And then the glories that follow speak of His second coming in the future of those many prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Now go back to Luke 19. We'll pick up. That's the context. You need to understand the frame of mind of all the Jewish people. Of their false expectations of what they think Jesus will do for them. Basically, they have a wrong view of Jesus. And so that's really one of the main things that I want to highlight in the events from 2,000 years ago. When we are done, hopefully we will be back to the plumb line in our thinking about having a proper perspective of who Jesus is and why He came. Even in His very character and having a balanced view of His character. So uh, I take this passage starting at verse 28 all the way down to 48. It covers two days. It's uh, Palm Sunday or His triumphal entry and then a little bit of what happened the next day on Monday morning. It is powerful. So we'll look at that. That was the cleansing of the temple. So we'll just break it up into four uh, chunks to help us think it through in chronological order. The emphasis being on who was Jesus. Why did He come the first time? And the first thing that we need to remember about Palm Sunday and the Passion Week and the glorious death and resurrection of Christ is that Jesus came as the humble King. And that's point number one. The humble King. Again, the Jews and even His apostles are thinking He's not the humble King. He's the reigning warrior on the great white stallion. That wasn't the case. Let's look at verses 28 to 37 in the reality of the blessed humble king. Verse 28, and after he had said these things, that's that parable, that powerful parable that he gave to correct their thinking before they entered into Jerusalem. Reminding them of why he came. He came as a humble savior. And so he finishes that teaching Emphasizing that main truth, actually, if you look back in Luke 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It's not the Son of Man came to seek and to save the Jews from Rome or the pagans. It's I'm on a spiritual mission. I'm the humble Savior. And I came to seek. God takes the initiative in salvation. And to save, and that's spiritual salvation, a spiritual saving, That which is lost. Who's that which is lost? Those who don't deserve to be saved. Oh, that's me. Amen? So that's the context. Verse 28, the humble king, and after he had said these things, told that parable, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. He had now just gone from Jericho up to Mount of Olives, about 16 miles as he's headed to Jerusalem. His disciples are with him, his apostles, and many of the crowd are following him. Probably a huge, massive crowd is following him now. Because he just did some amazing miracles. He healed two blind men in Jericho. Uh, He just got finished raising Lazarus from the dead. And John chapter 12 says everybody was talking about it. Everybody knew it. And even people from Jerusalem now were coming across the ravine through the Kedron Valley to go up to the Mount of Olives because they knew Jesus was coming. And there were just throngs of people coming to see Jesus and to see if Lazarus, the risen one, is with him. So there are estimates between the crowds coming with Jesus and the crowd that he's going to meet where there were two million people in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. 
There could have been a couple hundred thousand people surrounding Jesus as He's slowly going down the Mount of Olives one mile into the city of Jerusalem. Can you imagine? There'll be two to three different football stadiums in our day of people pushing in on Him as He's ascending up to Jerusalem. In verse 29, and it came about that when He approached Bethphage and Bethany, Bethany was just a mile and a half from Jerusalem. Bethany is where He would go often to be with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus because that's where they lived. Small little village away from the people to get some rest, to get refreshed. And that's probably what He did Saturday before this day according to the Gospel of John. So now He's ready to make His last trek about a mile to the holy city. And he approached these two towns and near the mount that is called Olivet. And now he's on Mount Olivet, the Mount of Olives. Familiar place. And there at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. It doesn't tell us who they are. It's just two of his disciples that were trustworthy. Verse 30 saying, Go into the village opposite you, in which uh, as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Thus you shall speak to him, the Lord has need of it. And those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. Kind of interesting uh, in terms of it just says he sends two of his disciples. And aren't you kind of like itching? Oh, I wonder who that was. I wonder if it was John and Peter or somebody else. Well, you know, that is not for us to know. It's not for us to even speculate, but I just think it's interesting. It doesn't mention their names. Just two of the disciples. They don't need the glory. They were just strictly servants to obey Christ at this very important time in his life. So this lack of detail is interesting. And then there's more lack of detail. Go into the village opposite you. Well, which village? Well, we don't need to know what village. So there's this lack of detail. But then that's mixed with amazing, minute detail that we pause and think, well, why are you going into so much detail about this? What's the detail? When you go into some unnamed village, these two unnamed disciples, what you will find immediately, says another one of the Gospels, immediately when you go into the village, you will find... The following, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, baby colt, baby donkey. You'll find a colt, not only a colt, you'll find it tied there. Five times in this passage, it mentions the fact that that colt was tied there. I think God's trying to say something. The colt will be tied, the colt will be tied, the colt will be tied, or it needs to be untied. Immediately, we could think of Genesis 49, verse 11, where it refers this prophecy regarding Judah and the blessing that he would receive, and that Judah was the kingly line out of which whose loins the King, the Messiah, Christ, would come. And in Genesis 49.11 it refers to one whose colt would be tied to the vine. Jesus Christ fulfilling Scripture once again. And so this detail. And Jesus says, go into the village and immediately you will find. How did Jesus know that if they did that immediately they would find? Jesus hadn't been there. He'd been away from Jerusalem. How does he know it's going to happen that way? How does he know that the donkey is going to be there and be tied? And how do you know that people and the owners are going to come up and ask this very question? How do you know that? This is the omniscience of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the humble Savior, yet he is God in a body. He is the God-man, and he retains the attributes of God and uses them as he submits to the Father in doing the perfect will of the Father at any given moment. And here, the Father allowed him to use his omniscience at this critical time to assure his disciples of what would happen. And so the disciples go into this village. Immediately, sure enough, uh, verse 30, go in there, you'll find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Thus you shall speak, the Lord has need of it. 
the, it's just the Lord. It's not Jesus. It's not Jesus of Nazareth. It's just the Lord has need of it. And those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. Why? Because Jesus is God. He is omniscient. That's why Peter could say after the resurrection, Lord, you know all things. He's not just a man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a wise rabbi. He is God in the flesh. And he knows all things. And today the Lord Jesus knows all things. He knows our heart. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. He knows our needs. He knows our sin. He knows the forgiveness we need for our sin. He's the blessed Lord. Verse 32. And those who were sent away found it just as he had told them in verse 33. And as they were untying the colt, could have been out in public tied to a vine. They were untying the colt. They could have looked like a couple of thieves. But God was orchestrating and overseeing. Its owners, those who owned the donkey and the donkey was with its mother, the owner said to them, why are you untying that colt? Or we don't know how they said it, but they did ask that question. Jesus predicted it. Verse 34, and they just simply said, the Lord has need of it. Very likely that these were people who were familiar with Jesus who owned that donkey. Very likely that they maybe were disciples of the Lord Jesus and had respect for his ministry. But at any rate, they are submissive. They don't argue. They render that donkey so that the Lord might use it. As a matter of fact, maybe they got excited about that. Can you imagine? Can you believe it? Jesus wants to use our donkey. I wonder what he's going to use it for. But they said, yeah, take it. And the disciples did. Verse 34, and they said, oh, the Lord has needed it. And they brought the donkey and its mother to Jesus. And then the apostles or the disciples in the immediate vicinity, they threw their garments on the colt. Why? It didn't have a saddle on it. It had never been ridden before. It was fresh. It was unused, which is perfectly fitting for the sinless Messiah as king. Think about all that happened in the life of Christ, of all the things that were fresh and pristine because he deserved it. I think about the, the tomb that he was buried in that had never been used. How appropriate for our blessed Savior. This donkey that's going to bring him in as king, it had never been used by anyone. came from a mother who had never been used by a man. She was pure and pristine. How appropriate for our blessed Messiah. So this fresh little colt, never been used. Uh, the apostles, they take their garments and they throw it on and they make a saddle for their blessed Savior, Jesus. And get this, the end of verse 35 says, the disciples, they put Jesus on it. Can you picture that? Getting down there, bending over, put your foot there, and they literally are physically putting Jesus on this donkey. You know what they are doing? They are crowning Him or they are commissioning Him as King. That's what they're doing. He is king. He is our king. He deserves to be on this donkey. We deserve to be walking by his side. He is our Lord. And it's interesting. Jesus didn't say, get your hands off me. Why are you trying to make me king? What do you think you're doing? It's not my time yet. He didn't say that here. You know, he said that for three years. From the very beginning, from the first time he did a miracle, the first time he was preaching publicly, it says that the people who were so intrigued and attracted, continually pressed in on him to make him king, literally to force him to be a king for the wrong reason, for their own selfish purposes. And for three plus years, Jesus was saying, no, it is not my time, it is not my time, it is not my time. Or he does a miracle and he says, don't tell anybody about that, don't tell anybody my name, don't tell anybody that I did that. Because he knew it was not his time. He did not want his plan to be circumvented. And yet here, he doesn't reject anything. He welcomes the praise and the help and the support of his apostles. And he allows them 
to commission him as the king because you know what? Jesus didn't become king on this day. Jesus already was king, wasn't he? He is the king of the ages. He is the eternal king of kings. And this is the first time in his public ministry where he welcomes this from the apostles. Hence, he is saying, now is the time. The moment for which I was born has come. And even though the apostles didn't fully understand that, Jesus fully understood the significance and what it meant. He is king. So he gets on the little donkey. By the way, it's interesting. If you go back and read about the coronation of King David, on the day of his coronation, he rode in on a donkey. King Solomon, the same thing. There is a Davidic kingly tradition here. Jesus, the son of David, likewise being coronated publicly so on a donkey. Verse 36, and as he was going, so he gets on the donkey and then he starts going down Mount Olive, heading for Jerusalem and the eastern gate at the time of Passover with floods and multitudes of people everywhere in the holy city. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. So the apostles in verse 35 put their garments on the donkey to make a saddle. And then all of the multitude of people, dozens and thousands of people who are watching around, they do the same. Here comes the king. He's on a donkey. He's heading into Jerusalem. He's going to reign as king. And we submit to him. So they start taking off their outer garments and throwing them down on the road and making a path for Jesus as the king to trample on their clothes, rolling out literally the red carpet for the deserving king. This is following suit of what happened in the days of uh, kings when Jehu was recognized as king and the people immediately took off their garments and threw it underfoot so that King Jehu might walk on the clothes of the people, showing their willing submission that He is our King. We will submit. We will obey. He is the deserving King. That's the sign that's being displayed here. And the multitudes join in. Isn't that exciting? They are speaking out uh, excitedly, praising His name, calling Him King. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praising Him with huge, massive palm branches. Thousands and thousands of people throwing their garments on the ground, making a path for the King. What a display. And if we were able to be bystanders and watch that, we'd, we'd be rejoicing and saying, this is exciting. This is awesome. And it was awesome. And Jesus welcomes it, every part of it, of the praise that comes His way. The only problem is He's the only one that understands what kind of procession this is. This isn't a procession to glory and reigning on high in Jerusalem as His throne. This was a procession of death on behalf of sinners. Yet God can use the ignorance of people. God does use the ignorance of people to accomplish His purposes. And He's doing that right here. He overrides the ignorance of the people to accomplish His perfect will to recognize Jesus to the very city He was to come as the rightful King. Verse 37, And as He was now approaching the city, getting closer and closer, and as He's on Mount Olives, pretty soon He's going to be able to see the city of Jerusalem uh, especially the, one of the first things that he'll see from where he's coming, the direction he's coming, is King Herod's temple glistening in gold in the sun, bright as can be. And that's where he's headed. Approaching the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God. There it is, the whole multitude, thousands and thousands of people praising God. Notice how joyous they are. Joyfully they are praising God. They are excited. They are exuberant. This is a day of celebration and praise with a loud voice. Did you know Jews can be loud? 
I, I worked for Jews for Jesus for a couple of years, and I came to realize Jewish people, they can be loud. They are charismatic. They are enthusiastic. They are expressive, and it's loud in a good way. It was something to behold, especially in terms of their passion for God. And here these Jews have the same passion for Yahweh, God, and Jesus, even though their thinking is misguided, and joyfully expressing with loud voices. And what were they rejoicing over? They were rejoicing over Jesus as the King and also the miracle worker. At the end of verse 37, they were just thinking about the miracles that He had done. That's why they were so excited and rejoicing. They just saw two men get healed of blindness. They just saw a dead man rise from the dead and Lazarus had never seen anything like that before. And so they were rejoicing at the prospects of Jesus our King, Jesus our miracle worker, and how can we use Him as the miracle worker to overthrow Rome and economic oppression and who knows what they were thinking. And pagan religion. We know their thinking was wrong though. It was what will Jesus do for me? So like I said, the loud, vociferous cacophony of praise piercing to the ear because there were so many people rejoicing and praising. That's going to be a huge contrast to how Jesus acts in their very midst. And we're going to see that in just a second. So first we have the coming of the humble king. Let's go on to point number 2, 38 to 40. As Jesus begins to progress down that Mount of Olives and through the valley and then entering the very beginning of the city where Herod's temple was with thousands of people there to greet him. Thousands. Starting at verse 38. You have the prophetic king. First we have the humble king and then we have the prophetic king. The prophecies being fulfilled are all over the place in the passage. I can't even point out all of them. We don't have time. But the entire Old Testament is filled with prophecies of the coming Messiah. That's what it was all about. Jesus is the theme of the Old Testament. And the detail with which he fulfills prophecies is absolutely amazing. There's one of them listed here, or a couple actually. So let's look at the prophetic king, not just the humble king. By the way, the word king, well, that's kind of the theme here. Jesus is called king here in verse 38. From a Jewish point of view, a king wasn't just strictly a secular political ruler in the mind of the Jews in the Old Testament economy. A king was a representative of God. He wasn't just political. He was also religious and spiritual. The Old Testament Hebrew word for king was the anointed one or the Messiah or Mashiach. That's what king means. Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the anointed one. The anointed one of God. Jesus, the king. And he's not just a superficial, one-dimensional, self-seeking, political, money-making king. He's the humble king. If he could have such a thing, what an irony, what a contrast, what a paradox. The humble king? I dare say there's only been one of those in the history of the world, and it's King Jesus. The humble king, and now the prophetic king, verse 38. So the crowds are screaming out. They're not just screaming out spontaneous, meaningless words, but they're quoting Scripture, Old Testament Scripture. And they're being very specific in what they quote and shout out. Uh, 38 says they were saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. What is that? They are quoting a specific phrase from Psalm 119, Psalm 118. Maybe during Holy Week this week, it'd be a good time of devotion to read through the entirety of Psalm 18 very slowly. Because I think this verse is quoted by all four Gospels at this time. 
Psalm 18 is very unique. Most of the Psalms are written by David or associates of Solomon and others. But scholars believe and have good reason to believe that Psalm 118 was written by Moses. That would make Psalm 90 and Psalm 118 unique in that they were written by Moses, meaning they were two of the oldest Psalms in existence. David is about 1,000 B.C. Moses is about 1,400 B.C. And you can just see the nature of it, uh, the parallels uh, of, of the Psalm 118, how they correspond to life in Egypt and uh, this royal, regal theme that's traced all throughout Psalm 118. It was known as a hymn of ascent or regal ascent. It was a, a, a psalm that was read and recited and quoted from many times when a king was to be installed at a formal coronation. So there is no mistake of why these people are quoting this specific verse out of this specific psalm. Jesus is being installed as our king. They are saying it for the wrong reason. Nevertheless, it is true. Verse 38 is true of the Lord Jesus. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 119. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king Messiah, the anointed one Jesus, who comes to represent the Lord Yahweh himself. And what we would later learn from New Testament revelation, especially from Apostle Paul, that Jesus Himself is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? But He comes in the name of the Father as representative of the triune God. And He is a blessed King. It says peace in heaven and glory in the highest is the truth. Jesus is going to refer to this peace in verse 42. They misunderstand the peace that that psalm was talking about, the peace that he came to bring. Jesus was called the Prince of Peace. He came the first time to bring peace indeed, but it wasn't peace with the Romans, or it wasn't peace on any kind of physical level. The peace that Jesus came to bring the first time was peace between sinful humanity and a holy God. And the only way that this holy God could be appeased was with the shedding of blood, was with death. The consequence of sin is death. And only a supernatural death and pure blood could pacify a supernatural, eternal, holy, almighty God that He might become reconciled and friends with sinners. So this verse is true. Jesus is the blessed King and He came to bring peace. He came to bring peace between sinful humanity and a holy God. And He would indeed pave the way and accomplish that so that there might be peace in heaven. And if you know Jesus Christ today, this has been fulfilled in you. You have peace with the Creator of the universe. Isn't that amazing? You have peace with heaven. You were born into this world. I was born into this world. A sinner, separated from God, a child of wrath, of God's holy wrath. Before we were saved, we are called enemies of God. I was an enemy of God for 19 years, whether I realized it or not. That's what Scripture says. And because of the power and the truth of the Gospel that someone shared with me in the work of the Holy Spirit, removing the blindness of my sin and removing satanic blindness that deceived me, I was able to embrace the truth of the gospel, believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and cry out to Him that I might be saved. And He adopted me into His family and I became a child of God. And now I have supernatural heavenly peace with Almighty God who is in heaven, Creator of the universe. Isn't that amazing? That is why Jesus came. And if you're a Christian, that happened to you too. You have the same biography or the same autobiography. Peace in heaven. Peace in heaven. And when there is forgiveness between God and a sinner, there is glory in heaven. When there is a sinner gets saved down here on earth, somebody's rejoicing in heaven. So Jesus just got finished telling us that a little earlier, right? 
Even if it's one soul that turned to Christ and got saved, there is rejoicing in heaven. There is glory in heaven. There is happiness in the very presence of Almighty God when sinners get saved. And so that beautiful psalm, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, all because of Jesus Christ who came to seek and to save the lost. What a wonderful truth. So you can imagine Jesus is descending down the mountain on that colt, recognized as a king. People are shouting out regal, kingly scriptures fit only for the Messiah at the top of their lungs in unison, hundreds and thousands of people. And you can probably hear the noise echoing through the canyon and the valleys all the way for miles. Even the very presence of the city of Jerusalem and the temple reverberating up and down against the walls. and People are flooding out of the city of Jerusalem and out of the temple, according to the Gospel of John, to go and meet Jesus on the way up the hill. Like I said, estimates of a couple hundred thousand people are here in this group screaming, singing, praising, waving palm branches, throwing their clothes down. Blessed is the King. And in the midst of all this euphoria and praise and celebration and glory, all of a sudden we have this. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees, the perennial enemy of Jesus, the scoffers and the mockers of Jesus, the Messiah, from day one, from the first time Jesus ever opened his mouth to teach the teachings of God and to do the good deeds of God, they have been his enemy. They have been jealous of him. They've sought to kill him from day one. We saw that in John chapter 2. For three years, they were jealous of him. For three years, they were really intimidated and afraid of him. Why were they afraid? Because of their guilt. Sin makes us guilty. Sin creates fear. And when you are driven by guilt and fear, you can become mad. And that's what these Pharisees were. On the inside, literally not screaming for His glory, but screaming for His blood. It said in John chapter 5, from that day forward, they sought all the more to kill Him. That was two years before this incident. If they could just have the right opportunity. What was the right opportunity? In secret, in quiet, in a corner, in the dark, when people are not around. That was the ongoing theme of the opportune time for them. We will arrest Him when people aren't around. We will arrest Him when people can't see. We will arrest Him when there aren't crowds to behold what's going on. That's their thinking. They're driven by that. How ironic that Jesus says, you know what? You're going to arrest me. And you know when it's going to be? It's going to be the busiest time of the year with the largest crowd in the history of the world ever in my presence. That's what you're going to do. You're going to arrest me on my timetable, said Jesus, not yours. But here's the seething Pharisees. It's not all of them, but some of them, because some of the Pharisees actually, a minority, believed and got saved but representatives of the Pharisees. Can you imagine? They fought their way through the crowd. Maybe some of them were just following along incognito as phonies on the side of Jesus. They had to be close enough where he could hear them amongst the crowds who were screaming and yelling. So they weaseled their way like snakes through the crowd and eventually got close enough to where they could say something where Jesus would actually hear them. And in the midst of all this praise, look what they say in verse 42, or um, verse 39. And some of the Pharisees... In the multitude, there it is, probably getting squished and pushed all over, and they probably either got close enough or shouted at the top of their lungs. The very antithesis of what all the people were praying or praising in the multitude, they said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Can you imagine that? Just the audacity, the callousness, the hardness of heart to do this publicly 
to make public spectacle and fools of yourself in the midst of all this praise where everybody else is recognizing him as the rightful king. These few men scream out, shut your disciples up. Well, Jesus heard him. He didn't just ignore him. This demanded a response. Verse 40. And Jesus answered and said to them, I tell you, I tell you, that is a severe way to begin a sentence. I tell you, if these become silent, if my disciples become silent and stop crying out that I am the blessed Messiah, if all those who are surrounding me following Lazarus become silent and stop praising me publicly, or the mass multitude coming from Jerusalem to greet me, possibly 100,000 people in the crowd who are now praising me, waving palm branches, crying out Scripture from memory, praising me as king. That's what he means. If these become, if these Jewish people stop praising me and celebrating me and recognizing me as king, and by the way, you know what? That would happen. That would happen within days. This crowd of 200,000 Jews praising Jesus just went dead silent by Thursday, four or five days later. When he's before his mock trial and before the crowds with Pilate, and Pilate presents them before the crowd so that the crowd can render a verdict, these very Jews, probably many of the same people who were praising him as the Messiah, are now clenched fist yelling, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. The fickle mob. Here's another prophecy. Jesus said, if these become silent, better yet, when these become silent. And don't speak up for me. And no longer praise me as their king. The stones will cry out. The stones will cry out. That, that's just loaded. What Jesus was saying is, I am the God man. I am almighty God. I deserve praise. I deserve worship. I deserve glory. And I will get it. And the Father will make sure that I get it. And if God has to allow stones to speak out and praise me, or all of creation, He will. That's one possibility. I think the greater possibility when He says the stones will cry out, the very stones of Jerusalem. When the people stop speaking my praises, that means that the people have turned their back on me in disbelief. And as a result, God's wrath will come upon this people. God's wrath will come upon this nation. The holy nation of Israel. And as a result, a byproduct of that wrath will be the testimony of the stones in shambles on the ground as they cry out in witness to God that this very people has rejected their very own Messiah. And the blessed temple where all things were supposed to transpire in terms of the religious center of Israel and Jerusalem will be leveled to the ground. Not one stone will be standing upon another. Jesus said that at the same time period where He made the prophecy. Or this temple is going to be destroyed. They are going to unload it brick by, or stone by stone. Huge, massive stones. And not one stone will remain standing upon another. And the terminology he uses in verse 44 of your present passage, he says, they will level it to the ground. And sure enough, when the Roman general Titus Vespasian came in at about 67 A.D. and began to plot out how he was going to attack Jerusalem, and besiege it, raise it, and level it to the ground. 
He surrounded it strategically with almost 50,000 Roman soldiers positioned in four and five different camps and quadrants. And then for five months, he laid siege to the, the city of Jerusalem, laid it to waste, burned the entire city so that it went up in flames, and every stone in the temple was removed so that not one stood upon the other. It was leveled to the ground. And what remained was the absolute total decimation and destruction of the so-called holy city where the stones of God's judgment cried out against the very people who were supposed to embrace their Messiah but instead rejected Him. It's amazing. Jesus was the prophetic king. Let's go on to the point number three, and that's 41 and following. Sometimes His prophecies spoke of His judgment, but... The next one is his compassion, 41 to 44, the compassionate king. Jesus was the humble king, the prophetic king, and now the compassionate king. Verse 41, as I said, as he gets over the Mount of Olives, and one of the first things he sees is his bright, glistening, golden city, and especially the temple, which is his destination. And he sees the throngs of people and the crowds of people. That's really what he sees. He sees the city. When it says he sees the city, he sees people. He sees his fellow Jews trained in the Old Testament Scriptures, taught that a Messiah was coming. People made in His image. The ones He came to seek and to save, for they were lost. That's what He sees from His aerial view of the Mount of Olives. And He knows what's going to happen. He knows He's going to be rejected. So He doesn't get angry and reprove them and rebuke them and have utter disdain. His gut hurts. For them, they are lost. They need Him. They need forgiveness. They need a Savior. So look at it. Verse 41. When He approached the city, He saw the city. He saw all these people. People without a shepherd. It says He wept over it. He wept over the city. He wept over the people. He wept over their lostness, their deception, their sin that shackled them. Satan who was blinding them. They didn't even know it. He wept over them. This is the strongest word in the Greek. For weeping. He was heaving over the city. It's not just a tear running down his cheek. It's an emphatic Greek word for the heaviest kind of crying or weeping, sobbing that someone can do. That's what Jesus was doing. Can you imagine? The crowd all around him is celebrating and crying out, rejoicing full of gladness, and they're around the very king they're rejoicing over, and he stops and he's sobbing uncontrollably. I wonder what those people were thinking. He cries out so they could hear it. If you had known Jerusalem, if you had known Israel, if you had known my fellow Jews, if you had known in this day, today, in the time of my coming as the Messiah, the last three years, the very purpose for which I came as the Messiah, even you, the things which make for peace, if you'd only known why I came, I came to bring spiritual peace, to seek and to save that which is lost. Not to be your physical, political king to overthrow the Romans for your economic benefit. That isn't why I came. I'm talking to you, fellow Jews. I'm talking to you, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, those who, of all people who should have known. You don't even know why I came. You don't even know why I am here. You don't even know what's about to transpire of why I'm going to die. It's in your Scriptures. I came to bring peace. Peace between sinful man and a holy God. 
But this reality, you've been blinded from it. These truths have been hidden from your eyes. Why? Because of hardness of heart. Pride and sin. It's a a devastating, horrific reality. Pride. So he's the compassionate king here because he has compassion over the city, but he gives a warning as the compassionate king. And that's in verse 43, for the days shall come. This is a fact. Can you imagine? Matthew was written probably in 45 A.D., the first gospel. And Mark could have been written shortly thereafter, maybe in the 50s. Luke probably writes sometime in the 60s, mid-60s, which means Titus is on his way. The Romans are on their way. When Luke is written and first revealed, when this prophecy is made, it, it is imminent, the destruction of Jerusalem. For the days shall come upon you, Israel, Jerusalem, when your enemies, that's the Romans, will throw up a bank before you. That is exactly what Titus Vespasian did. Right in front of the city. Right in front of the temple. They will surround you. They did that for five plus months, the Romans did. They will hem you in on every side. They did that. They barricaded them on the inside so that many of the Jews would starve to death. And anybody that left or tried to enter would be killed immediately. Verse 44, and it all culminated when they finally besieged the city in 70 A.D. Titus and all of his Roman soldiers, they went in and they killed everybody and everything that moved, including women, children, the elderly, animals. Slaughtered it. Josephus wrote about it. They leveled it to the ground. And even your children within you, they will not leave in you one stone upon another. There it is. Tore the temple down. Because you do not recognize the time of your visitation. You didn't recognize the Messiah is here. God, God is here. That, the time of visitation is when God makes His presence known to His people. And God was there in the fullness of Jesus Christ as the God-man and they didn't recognize it. Sad. This is reason to cry and sob. Jesus hurts in his gut. That's what compassionate means for these people who need a Savior. Let's go on to the last part, uh, 45 to 48, and that's the righteous king. Jesus is this humble, patient, merciful, gracious, blessed, compassionate Savior. But when people continue to reject and reject and reject and reject and harden their heart towards God, eventually impending judgment comes and is deserved from a holy God. And this is manifest in the behavior and the words of Jesus in 45 to 48. So he makes it to the city finally through the throngs of the crowds, verse 45, and he entered the temple. That's the first thing he does. And it's kind of towards the end of the day at this, at this point on Sunday night. And he began to... Oh, actually John tells us that he entered into the temple and in uh, Mark, I think, and he surveyed the city when he first got there. And then he left because it was getting late, according to the Gospel of John and the other Gospels. Then the next day, he wakes up early in the morning, probably around 6 a.m., according, I think, to Matthew. And then he enters into Jerusalem. So this is now Monday. This will be tomorrow. Jesus entered the temple at the beginning of the day. People are bringing, uh, there's a lot of activity and buzz going on in the temple. Thousands and thousands of people are there. It can accommodate all those people in Herod's temple and the the courtyards. And what was going on was a desecration and blasphemy where 
The temple was built by God to be a center of pure religious worship and prayer to a holy God. False religionists have distorted it and they were taking advantage of the people. And they turned it into a bazaar and they were selling things, actually animals for sacrifice at an illegitimate price. Scalping people is what they were doing. Scalping poor people who couldn't afford it. Oh, I won't accept your turtle dove, so you've got to take this one. And that, by the way, it'll cost you ten times more. But you must do this in order to get your sins forgiven. It's extortion. And Jesus knew it, and so he entered into the temple, and he began to cast out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a, a robber's den, a den of thieves. You're ripping people off. Literally, Jesus was grabbing people and throwing... They speculate that there could have been hundreds of these people with their tables and the money changers selling illegitimate goods. Hundred, Can you imagine Jesus, one man, clearing out that entire racket that was going on? John chapter 2, when he did it the first time, three years previous, he was doing it physically. He was literally grabbing people, grabbing tables, grabbing chairs, flipping them over, throwing the money, screaming at the top of his lungs. He made a whip and was actually using it, whipping these people. Another one of the Gospels says on this day, as he chased them all out, he wasn't allowing anybody to take anything with them. They went out empty-handed. This is Jesus, the righteous judge. This was not sin. This was righteous indignation. This was holy wrath. This was holy anger. Because of the blasphemous distortion of pure worship that was supposed to be happening in the temple for which it was built, where he reminded them, and he quotes from the Scripture, My house shall be called a house of prayer. When Solomon dedicated that temple for the first time in the 1000 B.C., Solomon had all the people before him in front of the temple, and he prayed. And he prayed one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. And in that prayer, Solomon reminded the people that this shall be a house of prayer. And then when Jesus was born, Simeon prayed for Jesus in the temple. And when Jesus was born, Anna prayed for Jesus in the temple because it was a house of prayer. And they distorted that. They used religion to their own ends. They, relu- they used religion and the truth to gain money. Filthy lucre for themselves. People still do that to this day. Makes God angry. And he chased them out. What did he do? He cleansed the temple appropriately so. Now that there are no more money changers and no more thieves doing their dirty business, now the temple is pure and clean for what it's supposed to be used for. What is that? Prayer and teaching the Word. And that is exactly what Jesus begins to do. Verse 47, look at there. And he was teaching daily in the temple. He cleared it out on Wednesday and probably the rest of, I mean on Monday, and probably on the rest of Monday he was teaching all day in the temple. Publicly to the crowds because this was Passover. Can you imagine? The Pharisees, I guarantee, they were in the audience. The Sadducees, they were in the audience. Trying to stump him up, trying to trip him and trying to arrest him and trying to shut him up. What does he think he's doing? Teaching publicly all day long in the temple during Passover week. Who does this guy think he We have got to shut him down. But it says he was teaching daily. And from the other Gospels, we know that Jesus taught all day on Monday. He went back to the temple. He taught all day on Tuesday. He went back to the temple. He taught all day on Wednesday. He went back to the temple. He taught all day on Thursday. And then finally, the Pharisees had had enough. We must stop this man. We must kill him. And they did on Friday. And they killed the blessed Lamb of God on the day of Passover. Isn't that amazing? 
the day of Passover, when a lamb was to be slaughtered for the sins of the people, Jesus, the ultimate lamb of God, was slaughtered for the sins of the people in perfect fulfillment of God's amazing plan. So he taught every day in the temple with the chief priests and the scribes and the teaching men uh, and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him and they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging upon his words. And the people were just mesmerized and blown away by his authoritative, blessed, compassionate, wonderful teaching. And Luke 20 says what he was teaching about. He was teaching the glorious gospel, the good news. To the very end, Jesus was calling sinners to come. Come, repent and be saved. Come and find rest in me. It's the good news. It's the good news for sinners. And that's what Holy Week is all about. That's a wonderful truth to take to lunch, isn't it? Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.